Good evening, and welcome to uh, episode 44, part 5 of 7 of the Revelance of the Bible of Knight Templar, and uh, we're going to dive right into this, uh, and uh, we're on uh, part 5, like I said. Um, this section is going to be called The God of the Bible. And I'm taking this from uh, a book called The Revelance of the Bible by H.H. H. Rowley. Kind of an older book, but nonetheless, it is a good book. Um, lots of information. So, the God of the Bible. That God is a God of revelation, does not need further demonstration. The Bible is the record of that revelation in Israel. This is not to deny that there had uh, been other revelations in other races or that other religions embody some understanding of the grace and the glory of God and his will. Uh, Learn through, uh, through the experience of their founders and leaders. In Israel, that revelation had been affected in many ways. Um, there was a rabbi, Akiba, is reported to have said, quote, Beloved is is man in that he was created in the image of God. Um, It is greater love that uh, it was made known to him that he was created in the image of God. As it is written, uh, for in the image of God made he man. That's in Genesis. Quote, uh, that's unquote. Um, Some of the commentators on this passage have caviled at the statement and have suggested that grace is greater than a knowledge of grace. But grace, unknown, is incomplete, and the knowledge of grace implies the fact of grace, and is therefore greater than the grace alone, without that knowledge. Now, a few modern writers emphasize the otherness of God and man. Uh, this is an in, in coordinates, in accordance um, with the teachings of the Bible which nowhere obscures that difference or forgets the gulf that separates God from man. But truth is rarely a circle with a single center. It is more often an eclipse uh, with, a, with a tension between the two foci. And uh, the Bible cl- declares the kinship of God and man as firmly as it declares the otherness. Man was created in the image of God. He is a child of God. Uh, potentially in his creation and actually in Christ in whom we uh, are made. Quote, the children of God. And if the children, then heirs, heirs of God and the joint heirs with Christ. Romans, unquote. Um, That God's image in man is marred, uh, does not alter the fact, excuse me, um, does not alter the fact that man was made in the image or that even in his marred state, there is some kinship between him and God. Nor can we understand the statement that man was made in God's image in physical terms. For God is a spirit, as both Testaments teach. If we can, uh, It can only be understood to mean that man was created a spiritual being capable of fellowship with God. Capable of revealing in himself the qualities which belong to God's character. But God's revelation of himself in man in creation was followed by his revelations of himself more largely in the experience and ministry of a long stream of men and women, including especially the prophets. 
these realized uh, something of the potentialities of their nature, enjoyed a measure of fellowship with God, perceived some of the qualities of his being, entered into a measure of divine, divine grace, and were the instruments of his revelation of himself to men. Yet their revelation was all incomplete and needed the revelation of God in Christ to carry it to its climax. Quote, God having in old time spoken unto the fathers and the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, hath in these last days spoken unto us in his God. Unquote. Hebrews. He embodied the final revelation of God, not in his word alone, but in himself, for he was the final word of God. He therefore took up into himself and into his teaching all that was true of God in the earlier revelation. And there are a few aspects of the heart of God seen in Christ, which have not their counterpart and preparation in the Old Testament. It is sometimes suggested that uh, he made no real contribution to our knowledge of God because all the elements of that knowledge are found elsewhere. As well might uh, one hold that there were no originality in Milton's Paradise Lost, for example, uh, because all of its words can be found in the dictionary and most of its ideas in other literature. It is, uh, it is in the uh, synthesis of the elements and their synthesis in himself that Jesus is uniquely the revelation of God. What then is the character of this God? We may leave aside the cold abstractions of omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. This is not because they do not figure in the biblical revelation or are of trivial significance. They are everywhere assumed. It is because it is of the greater moment to ask what limits his character imposes on the exercise of his powers than what is absence of eternal limit exists. His abiding presence with us might conceivably be filled with hostile purpose towards us, and his power might be arbitrarily employed to toy with us and to torture us. His knowledge of us might be associated with his concealment of himself and be the source of our undoing and not of our enrichment. The God who is revealed in the Bible and supremely in Christ is holier than this, that he cannot be exhausted in the other thought of him is uh, axiomatic and all that we can hope to do is to note some of the those qualities of god which stand out in the revelations the teaching of jesus was not systematic or exhaustive and and in himself jesus revealed god in the concrete wholeness of living personality and not in the analytical fragmentariness of series of uh, our attributes. If then we consider some of the attributes of God, we must avoid the folly of thinking that they are really separable from one another or that he is just of the of an amalgam of these qualities. Um, each of these qualities of God is only what it is associate in association with the others, and all our efforts to understand him should rather be thought of as glimpses of the one undivided heart of God through some of the many windows through in which we uh, may behold him. The God of the Bible is a holy God. The epithet applied to him frequently. Quote, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, 
unquote, uh, cried the men of Beth Shemus and uh, first Samuel. Um, quote, ye cannot serve the Lord and other gods as well, unquote, said Joshua to the people, for he is the holy God and a jealous God. That's in Joshua. Uh, in that section of the book of the Leviticus, which is known as the Code of Holiness, we find frequent emphasis on the holiness of God and, quote, ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Is repeated almost as a refrain. Psalmist, too, hymned his holiness. There is none holy as the Lord, unquote. First Samuel, exalt ye the Lord our God, for the Lord our God is holy. In Psalms, it is common to observe that the concept of holiness, holiness like so much else, uh, underwent development in Israel. Its earliest connotations seem to have had no relation to the moral quality, but to the separateness uh, from common life. A thing was holy when it was separated from common use and set aside for deity. A person was holy when he was debarred from mixing with ordinary people, save under controlled conditions. God was holy because he was separated from man. But if this was the source of the idea in Israel, it was not its goal. It came to have an ethical content and to stand for separateness from all that was evil and, and ignoble and shameful. Uh, when Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple, high and lifted up, and the seraphim sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, the whole earth is full of glory, unquote. That's in Isaiah, right? He showed uh, by his response to that, to him, holiness meant separateness from sin. Woe, quote, woe is me, for I am undone, unquote. He cried for, quote, for I am man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, unquote. And in this uh, cry, the answer uh, was the touch of his mouth with a live coal uh, from the altar and the assurance, quote, Lo, this has touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged, unquote. It was sin that was an offense to the holiness of God, sin that could not live in his presence. The holiness of God then is his moral sublimity, his purity, his righteousness, his freedom from mere arbitrariness. And this holiness makes demands upon men. He who made man in his own image would have men holy as he is holy. Quote, ye shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Unquote. His holiness is to is a rebuke to all unholiness as Isaiah perceived, and that it is not holy is a denial of him. All of this is as true to the teachings of the New Testament as of the old. Jesus addresses God as quote, Holy Father, unquote, in John. And the corollary of that holiness is the demand for the holiness in us is frequently underlined. Quote, like as he which called you is holy, 
be yourself also holy in the matter of a living. First Peter, uh, quote, again, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, unquote. Ephesians, and quote, to present you holy and without blemish in your unreprovable before him, unquote. Quote again, uh, not ye, know ye not that ye are the temple of God? Question mark. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are? Unquote. That's First Corinthians. That we, uh, quote again, that we may uh, be partakers of his holiness. Unquote. Hebrews. It is, it is equally true to the revelation of God given in Christ. If he was not to belie the revelation already given. It was necessary for him to manifest his holiness in himself and not merely as teaching about God. That uh, he did so is testified by his followers. Quote, ye denied the holy and righteous one, says Peter, and asked for uh, a murderer in Acts. It is equally testified by the effect he had on men. Quote, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, unquote, cried Isaiah when his eyes beheld the king. And when the woman that uh, was a sinner stood beside Jesus, the consciousness of her sin broke her heart in repentance. In Luke, the scornful looks of the bitter thoughts of the Pharisees were less able to rebuke her than the gentleness of him who suffered her to touch his feet. Yet from whose purity her soul shrank in the consciousness of its shame. His holiness did not consist in the negative grace of sinlessness alone. The great aim of the Pharisee was sinlessness, to guard the little circle of their lives from their intrusion of evil. That is not uh, what the holiness of God is like. He is not ever obsessed with fear lest he should do something wrong nor was Jesus. His holiness consisted in the positive force of goodness ever radiating from him. Not cold correctness, but a worn, sympathetic grace of character marked him. He left a trail of joy behind him. Wherever he went, it made it easier for all who were sensitive to the divine influence to believe in God and to believe in goodness. And holiness in us is not any self-conscious rectitude of character, but a spirit which uh, combines goodness and, and grace, which reaches out in self-forgetting service, which communicates itself to others. It's a source and not in us indeed, but in him whose holiness is our summons to it. It was uh, communicated to Isaiah uh, by the touch with uh, the live coal from the altar as he stood in divine presence uh, to the women that was a sinner and was communicated by even the richer touch of the personality of Jesus on her spirit. From both alike, it required complete concentration uh, to a newsness of life. The God of the Bible is a loving God. This is true of the Old Testament as well as the New. I have heard sermons which have contrasted the God of the New Testament as a loving God with the God of the Old Testament as a severe God. They have displayed understanding neither of the Old Testament nor of the meaning of love, uh, 
it is in the New Testament indeed that we read God is love, quote unquote, First uh, John. God so loved the world, unquote, in John. God commandeth his love toward us in Romans and many other verses which emphasize the thought of the greatness of God is matched with his graciousness, his majesty, and his mercy, his loftiness, his loftiness with his loving kindness. But in the Old Testament, we read it, it is, quote, it was not because of you, were more numerous than other peoples that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, but because the Lord loved you. It's in Deuteronomy. Uh, quote, with a everlasting love, I have loved thee. Therefore, I have drawn thee with loving kindness. In Jeremiah. Um, when Israel, quote, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of, the, of Egypt. Unquote. The quote, uh, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. In Psalms and many other verse uh, were the rich words so often translated by loving kindness, but with no adequate equivalent in our tongue is used for God's attitude to men. And if, quote, father, unquote, is our Lord's characteristic term for God and the name by which he teaches us to address him in the Old Testament, uh, two, we read, uh, quote, uh, Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer, from everlasting is thy name. That's on Isaiah. Uh, quote, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. In Psalms, quote, uh, And I said, Ye shall call me Father, and shall not turn away from following me. That's in Jeremiah. It is true. That in the Old Testament, God's love is thought of as limited to Israel, whereas in the New Testament, is thought of embracing all mankind. And he, he is seen to yearn over all who know him, not with a deepened yearning as the Old Testament writers saw him to yearn over the wayward of Israel. Yet even here, the New Testament thought is not without Old Testament basis. For it has been already said that there were voices in Israel in the Old Testament times that declared that since God was one, he was for all men, and that Israel alone was the, an insufficient inheritance for him. It was in Christ and his followers that this element of universality in the love of God was emphasized and made a vital element uh, in the thought of God and a uh, vitalizing element in his challenge. But it is unnecessary to forget that this was but the fructifying, fructifying of the seed of the Old Testament thought. Uh, it should not be forgotten either that the connotations of the word, quote, father, unquote, to uh, the hearers of Jesus was not quite what it means to so many today. It implied authority as well as affection. And the love of God is not just weak indifference uh, to conduct to the conduct of man. It uh, lays obligation sacred and exacting upon man. Love calls for love. And if God loves us, then is his love the uh, most moving call for our answering love? 
Fatherhood implies sonship. And if we are the children of God, then should we so live that our Father is honored in our lives? So live so live, so live that a man uh, may see our Father's likeness in his children. Um, what he is, we are called to be. We are the children of God, unquote, says Paul. And if the children, children, uh, they're then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ in Romans, that we, uh, we are privileged to inherit the treasures of God's heart should fill us with eager desire to enter upon our inheritance by the humble loyalty of our hearts. Nor should we neglect to observe the revelation that love is of the essence of God's heart. It is given in all its fullness in Christ himself. He who in himself revealed God to us was himself love. He not merely taught as the incomparable parables of Luke, uh, that God is love, he himself manifested a love that uh, knew no limits. Quote, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is was lost. That's in Luke. Quote again, uh, greater love hath no man than this, that uh, a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do the, not do the things which I command you. That's in John. Uh, another quote uh, in Second Corinthians, Quote, uh, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. He showed his love not alone in his restless seeking to lead men to the Father. He showed it in yearning pity for Jerusalem, which coldly rejected him. Quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I gathered thy children together as a hen gathered her brood? under her wings, and ye would not, unquote. That's in Luke. Oh, that thou hast uh, known in this day, even thou, the things which uh, belong to thy peace. Luke again. He showed, he showed it in his prayer for those who nailed him to the cross. Quote, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, unquote. Luke. He showed it above all his endurance of the cross. He made plain also the, the corollaries of the love he taught and exemplified. It calls for our answering love and for our similar love. He expressed those corollaries in the words which he called from uh, the Old Testament, but he filled them with a richer content and the one which plainly surprised his hearers from Luke, uh, quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind, unquote. He said in these words of Deuteronomy, and, uh, quote, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, unquote. In the words of uh, Leviticus, and when he explained what he meant by neighbor, he interpreted it to mean all whom we can help. However, little claim they might seem to have on us. Uh, we must love with a love of all embracing as God's own love. Just because we are his children called to be like him, we must love as God loves without stint or limit. Our answering love for him will lift us to share his love for men, that we may become the channels of his grace. 
The God of the Bible is a suffering God. To some, I know this is a heresy, and it cannot be established as a biblical doctrine by the citations of text. Yet, it seems to be implied. Surely there is anguish in God's heart behind the reproach. Quote, when Israel was a child then, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt as I called them, so they went from me. Unquote. Hosea. Uh, following the readings of the uh, spectacant, and even more in the cry, quote, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? Mine heart is turned within me, my compassion are kindled together, unquote. And if the view of Hosea uh, learned in his own experience uh, what the love of God is like is correct, then it was through the intense agony of his own heart and faithlessness of her he loved that he gained his understanding. And that must have proclaimed to him that God suffers as well as that God loves. Yea, uh, indeed, that God suffers because he loves. Nor is Hosea alone in the Old Testament. The infinite pathos of Jeremiah's word, quote, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of the living waters, and hewed them out of cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Unquote. Uh, Jeremiah, of course, can only it can only represent the heart of God if there is grief in that heart, and there can be no grief without pain. But deeper than anything else uh, that can be based on such texts is the fundamental character of love itself. If God is really love. And if the Bible rightly teaches that men have requited the love, uh, he was lavished on them by faithless, faithless desertion, then he must have suffered. For love alone can endure the deepest sufferings, and to the reject love is to wound the lover. The consideration may be reinforced by the recognition that Christ suffered the deepest agony. If then Christ in himself revealed God, he revealed him as God who suffers. God was in Christ, not merely in his life, but in his death, revealing himself supremely there in the suffering of our Lord. I do not, uh, of course, mean that God endured the physical suffering of the cross, but the physical agony uh, was not the deepest agony that Christ suffered there. It was the agony of love rejected, love that was so profoundly, profoundly loved those who rejected and crucified him. The cross is the most significant window of all of history through which we can uh, look into the heart of God, and it shows us a God who suffers in all human sin. And again, there comes a twofold appeal to us, an appeal to abandon the sin that causes him such agony, and an appeal to enter into his suffering that we may share it. Uh, we who are called to be children of God are called to be like him, and the call to suffering is one aspect of this call. Paul says we are all, heir, you know, quote, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so, that we suffer with him 
that we may be also glorified together. And that's in Romans. He also says, quote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. While in 1 Peter, we read, quote, in so much of ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice. Here, the thought was uh, doubtless in the physical suffering of persecution for the sake of Christ. Many have been called to enter into that fellowship of suffering, and in every age of the disciples of him who are rejected of men must be ready to face rejection. But we endure the pain, that pain, or not. We can share the burden of human sin and enter into the agony that sin causes the heart of God. When we enter into the depths of his yearning, his yearning love for men, and see the full tragedy of human sin as well as its exceeding sinfulness, we cannot contemplate it with unmoved heart, but enter in some measure into the pain of his heart and strive together with him to serve and save those he has so profoundly, so profoundly loves. The God of the Bible is the redeeming God. In the Exodus, he rescued the people. He had chosen from the Egyptian bondage and thus revealed his character in a way that Israel could not forget. In all their national afflictions, they looked to him for salvation from the hand of their national adversaries. And when they found a deliverer, it was ever he who raised him up and to him that their thanks were given. And he was and he was thought of Israel's next of kin, taking upon himself the duties of protecting, delivering, and vindicating his people. Quote, Fear not, thou worm Jacob and ye men of Israel, I will help thee is the Lord's oracle, and uh, they and thy Redeemer. The next of kin is the Holy One of Israel, unquote. It's in Isaiah. Okay, uh, another quote, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my, by my name. Thou art mine, unquote. Nor was he merely a national deliverer. In all their afflictions, whether arising from human adversaries or and oppressors, or whether arising from sicknesses and misfortune, the psalmist cried unto, the, unto God for their individual deliverance. Quote, Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. Unquote. O deliver me, another one, uh, quote, O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. In Psalms. Another one, quote, uh, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles, unquote. But Israel came to realize that the gravest and most cruel oppression is the oppression of sin and that a man's worst foe is within himself. And for the deliverance from that enemy, men look to the same redeeming God. Quote, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Deliver me from blood guiltlessness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Unquote. That's in Psalms. Another one, uh, quote, as for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Unquote. Quote again, help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins. 
for thy namesake. Now, in the New Testament, the thought of God's redemption is concentrated uh, concentrated on this inner spiritual redemption. This deliverance of personality from the grip of sin, um, on the first page of the New Testament, we read, quote, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Unquote. Matthew, right? Okay. And Jesus himself taught his disciples to pray. Quote, deliver us from evil. Unquote. In Matthew, God is still a redeeming God. And when he reveals himself to men in the person of Jesus, it is in a redeeming personality that he appears. To the church, Christ was their redeemer, not because he was other than God, but because God was in him, reconciling the world unto himself, Second Corinthians. Um, it was his, in his ministry of redemption that he revealed God in his ministry of redemption was achieved through his suffering. It was because he loved that he suffered and because he suffered that he saved. Quote, faithful is the sane and worthy of all exception that Christ, Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Unquote. First Timothy, in whom, quote, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians, uh, quote, uh, being justified fairly by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans. Uh, quote again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that is, hangeth on a tree. <coughs> Excuse me. And Galatians. Our great God, quote, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all inequity. Excuse me again. Um, quote, ye were redeemed not with corruptible things, but with precious blood as of the lamb without blemish and without spot, even the blood of Christ. That's First Peter. Um, the cross of Christ is conceived of not alone as the revelations of God and the supreme summons of his grace to man, but as the abiding spring of redeeming power. And again, there comes to us a twofold call, a call to experience in our hearts the recreation that God in Christ achieves and the call to share his redeeming work. Quote, we are God's fellow workers, said Paul in 1 Corinthians. And again, quote, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us ministry of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as through God did beseech you by us. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you as ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Second Corinthians. This does not mean, of course, that our service has any redeeming power in itself. It means that we, who are called to be the sons of God, are called to enter into the inheritance of the divine purpose. And so to receive his power into our hearts that will become the channels whereby that power reaches others, 
we are saved not for ourselves alone, but that we may become the instruments of salvation. The God of the Bible is a self-communicating God. He does not merely do something for us, but in us. And by this I mean that he not alone recreates our whole personality, but that he inhabits the tabernacle of our hearts. In the earlier chapters, um, in earlier parts that we've been talking about, uh, it had been observed that the Old, tech, tech, the Old Testament recognizes God's willingness to put his spirit in man and to make him the instrument of his purpose. The spirit of the Lord clothed itself with Gideon. It's in Judges, unquote. Uh, and the spirit of God uh, rushed upon Saul, First Samuel. Quote, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit in him. That's in Isaiah. Quote, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. Isaiah again. Quote, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. That's in Ezekiel. Um, quote again, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits the earth, whose name is, is holy. I dwell in the, in the high and holy place. With him I also, uh, that is of concrete, contrite and humble spirit. That's in Isaiah. The New Testament everywhere teaches that God's spirit so perfectly possessed Jesus that in in all that he was in all that he did God is manifest. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? Unquote. That's in Luke. Quote again, I and the Father are one. Unquote. That's in John. Quote, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The words that I say unto you, I speak not from myself, but the Father abiding to me doeth his works. Unquote. Quote again, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Unquote. Quote again, this is John in Second Corinthians. Uh, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto him, himself. And when we are recreated in Christ unto newness of life, the mark of that newness is just in the Spirit of God possesses our hearts and in the source of spring of all our life. For this indwelling presence of God's Spirit in New Testament has a variety of expressions. Sometimes it speaks of God dwelling in us, sometimes of Christ, sometimes of the, the Spirit of God, sometimes of the Spirit of Christ, and sometimes of the Holy Spirit. But th through all the variety of terminology, the same rich experiences is meant. Whosoever, quote, whosoever confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Unquote. First John, uh, quote, uh, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Unquote. Romans, quote, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Galatians, unquote, uh, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it 
it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. Unquote. That's in John. To me, quote, to me to live is Christ. Unquote. Quote, ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, that the spirit of God dwell in you, in Romans. Quote, not ye, not that ye are a temple of God, and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. First Corinthians. Quote, as many as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, in Romans. Quote, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's in Romans. Quote again, it's not ye that speaketh but the Holy Spirit. It's in Mark. Quote again, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, unquote, Hebrews. It is in the light of this that we gain a fuller understanding of the Christian con conception of salvation. It is not merely salvation from something, but salvation to something. Salvation from sin with all its devastating effects in our character and personality, and salvation to life that is hid with Christ in God. God comes into our life to share all our experience and to bear its burden with us and in us. He comes to, to give us his strength for every task and for every trial so that we can face the life undaunted and unafraid. He comes to set us great and high tasks, but to give us limitless resources for their fulfillment. Moreover, he stoops to share our experience that he may lift us up to share his life. He unfolds to us he, his thought, his purpose, his love, and our heart glows with the same thought and the purpose of and love. It becomes not something external that we admire or even submit ourselves to, but the living spring of our life. All this he gives to us because he gives to us himself. From this, it is clear that this mystical union of the believer with God is not directed to a mysticism that has no contact with the, any other reality of, than God. It is fundamentally practical, equipping us with strength and purpose for the hard world of reality in which we move. It lays upon us sacred obligations. For he who lives in us seeks men through us and reaches out to them through our lives. The heart that knows the joy of this experience communicates its joy to others. For as Augustine observed, quote, one loving soul sets another on fire, unquote. The God of the Bible is a reigning God. He is concerned not only for individuals, but for society and for the world. Men are not merely individuals who have their own life to live and, and, a, and are answerable to God for it. They are also parts one of another, involved in one another's lives in countless ways, owing a duty to their fellow men that is only second to their duty to God. Jesus spoke much of the kingdom of God and, and phrases its roots in the Old Testament. The apocalyptist looked forward to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. The author of the book of Daniel believed that when the four earthly empires had run their course, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that should never be destroyed. 
find that in Daniel. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven should be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, through whom the rule of God should be exercised. It was to the kingdom on the earth, but it was to the kingdom of God in which the will of God would perfectly prevail. The Gospels do not represent Christ as concerned with the overthrow of earthly empires or with the establishment of any political kingdom amongst men. My kingdom, quote, my kingdom is not of this world, unquote, he said to Pilate, it's in John, and the word is borne out by all his activity and teaching. He sought to establish spiritual principles to communicate the life of God to men, to lift men to find the spring of all their life in him. Hence, it is sometimes supposed that the kingdom he came to found is the church, the community of those who have received him into their hearts and have found in him newness of life. One of the urgent needs of our days is for a new doctrine of the church a revitalization of the corporate life of the Christian community, not alone in worship, but in witness and responsibility. For not only are we as individuals called to be the temple of God, but the church as a corporate body is the body of Christ. Unquote in 1 Corinthians. Um, quote, we are, we who are many, says Paul, quote, are one body in Christ and severely members one of another, unquote, Romans. Uh, the entire community of the redeemed owes a loyalty to God that can only be expressed in united service. In the times of natural emergencies, every citizen who is worthy of a name is eager to bear some share of the nation's burden and to stand in with his fellows in the great tasks that fall to be done. He, he who has looked on the heart of God and Jesus Christ and seen how deeply human sin wounds that heart and how overwhelming is the love wherewith, wherewith it reaches out to men will feel a similar eagerness to share that task of the church and to stand in it with the redeemed community and its vast and pressing responsibilities. Let it not be thought, however, that the kingdom of God is to be identified with the church and that the sole duty of the people of God is to give to God all the love and spiritual devotion of their hearts and to extend the bounds of the church. There is a divine will for the world and for corporate life of the community as a distinct from the church it needs to be brought under a divine rule. The prophets rightly demand social rightnesses in every sphere of life, not so much because it is man's due as because it is God's will. The apocalypse, uh, apocalyptics uh, rightly look for the earthly state in which God's will shall be everywhere done, though they were wrongly thought it could be achieved by catastrophic sweeping away of kingdoms is rather to be achieved as Jesus taught in a parable of the Lebanon by the transmuting of the spirit of men. It will not be imposed on men by divine authority, but achieved by men who submit themselves to the divine will. 
Our Lord taught us to pray, quote, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, unquote, in Matthew. It is clearly implied that there is a will of God for men in their corporate, as well as their individual life. There is no side of our life for which he has no message. All the social and economic and international relations of our world are within the range of his purpose. The kingdom of God will only come in all its glory when all men comprise the church, finding the spring of their life in him, and when his will prevails in every aspect of private and public life. And that means that they who are his must address themselves to the double task and the task of spreading his church, and so adding to their citizens of his kingdom and task of applying his spirit to all modern problems that his will may be learned and achieved. It has been earlier said that the hand of God may be found in history and that he is able to make the wrath of men to praise him. All who profoundly vaunt themselves against him will be overthrown, and they who trust in him may have quiet hearts. But God, but this but does God not establish his will amongst men, save through his own? The Syrians uh, might be the instrument of his wrath, and the harsh purposes of their cruel hearts might be the instrument of his will. Yet, they could never establish the positive will of God. They could cause the false creations of men to crumble. They could not erect the nobler structure of God's design. It was the prophets who were the revealers of his will, calling men to the, to the willing acceptance of his greater purpose and to the church infused with his living spirit is today committed the task of calling men to the willing acceptance of that will, of the relevance of this God of the Bible to be our modern world. It is unnecessary to say much, but we live in a world in which cruelty and selfishness and sin abound, where brutality and falsehoods and force are openly hailed as successful principles of life, and the gentle grace of holiness and self-forgetting service is treated with contempt. And of the ugliness of the world that is being built of these ungodly principles, men everywhere are sufficiently aware, nor is it alien to our need to be reminded in days such as these that God is love and that therefore all the infinite resources of his power are on the side of men, that he loves furthering their deepest and most abiding interest. Despite all that, all the appearances of the deceptive scene on which we look, that we live in an age of suffering. We are acutely conscious and perhaps no less conscious that our suffering is in the effect of sin. Men have desired peace, but not things that alone provide the enduring basis of peace. Some have wanted peace, but only so long as it did not interfere with their literary or lethargic life and ease. Some have wanted peace, but only so long as it brought them satisfaction of their ambition scheme. Few have been primarily concerned with righteousness, without which there can be no peace. And to the world that is riding in agony comes the message of the Bible. 
that in all it's suffering, God suffers, and that men's sin against themselves is even more sin against him. Again, in our yearning for deliverance from the sorrows of our world, we may fittingly be reminded that he who suffers in our suffering is redeeming God, who is able to deliver nations as well as individuals, and who alone can deliver us from the outer hills when we will let him redeem us from the sin which is their cause. When we yield to him our spirit to be purified and recreated by his power. For if we were merely saved from our ills and left with our sin, it will soon breed fresh ills. And if we purge of our sin and left the left with empty hearts to our own device, we shall soon find greater sins pressing to fill the place of the old, like the unclean spirits pressing into the occupied the garnished chambers uh, of Luke. The heart of the world needs to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, that we may not all alone saved from the horrors we know, but saved to the age that we desire. The age will only come when God's will is done on earth, as it is in heaven. He reigns supreme in all the life of the world. We are living in one of the, great, the greatest crises of history. The Church of God has little sense of the immense part she is called to play in this age. We are not idle spectators of vast forces we cannot control. We are charged with a dynamic spirit which is sorely needed to transform the world in ambassadors of God, who and it's, is its spirits needed. In an age when men are hourly adventuring their lives for others, performing deeds of incredible heroism, the church should hear the summons of the hour to comparable uh, throwing of herself without reserve into the divinely appointed task. When the conflict is over and the destruction ended, everything will depend on the quality of the peace that is established. Our supreme need is for it to be used, to be based, and based on the will of God, for men to recognize that there is a will of God in which alone man's true well-being is found, a will of God in which the apparently conflicting interests of men can be harmonized, but which has no place for their pride and boasting and selfish ambition. By calling men humbly to the feet of God of the Bible, in earnest desire to be guided by him into the knowledge of that will, and in the earnest desire to be the instruments of that will, and by unceasing prayer that our foes may share with us, the desire of the world in which God's will is done, we may greatly serve our world. Nor will our task be achieved in a moment. For whatever peace may be established, it is improbable that we will perfectly reflect the will of God, for it is unlikely that the nations will be perfectly attuned to his spirit. The task of declaring to men the God of the Bible as a relevant answer to all their need will thus continue to be the urgent yet glorious task committed to us. Well, that's all I have on uh, part five. Tomorrow night we'll do part six. 
and uh, tomorrow night will be sin, sin in the thought of the Bible. Um, I I want to thank you for joining me here tonight. Uh, I'm part of a Knights Templar group, uh, America Knights Templars, and uh, if you care to learn more about being a Templar, or coming to be a Templar, you can go to our website. That's at www.americanightstemplars.com. Um, if you have any prayer requests, you can go to that website. I'll give that again here before long. You can contact us there, and we'll do um, with our group. We'll do some uh, prayers, or I can do them right here on our podcast every day. Um, trying to do one every day. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I can't uh, due to other things going on in life. Um, but again, that's www.americanightstemplars.com. Or you can email me. Be more than happy to take an email. And that's davidr258 at comcast.net. Um, before we close out, uh, I'd like to say a little prayer. This is. Uh, for the unity of the church. So if you wouldn't mind bowing your heads. Heavenly Father, your church is so precious to you. You must grieve as you see our division and our warring factions. We pray that we might be truly as one as you are. Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, may your Holy Spirit lead us into all truth as we may sincerely follow your true word. And as we truly worship our Lord Jesus Christ, may we not break the unity you give us by our pride, jealousy, and selfishness, but may we rightly and lovingly affirm one another's gifts and the callings that those outside the church may come to know Jesus Christ and put their trust in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Again, thank you so much for joining me here. And if if you'd like other people to join here, please put the word out. I don't mind that. I, the more people that come in here and listen, uh, hopefully we can spread the light of God a little bit more to everybody. Um, that's our goal. That's our task. And if you want to know more about our missions, that would be good too. Again, that's uh, www.americanightstemplars.com. So please spread that word a little bit. Thank you for joining me again here tonight. I'll be back on here again at 8 p.m. tomorrow night, Central Time. Uh, may God bless you all and keep you in, in his loving arms. Good night.